Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Amy. We both grew up with dads who drank too much. So, we are both adult children of alcoholics. And we're here to talk about our experiences using honesty and some pretty dark humour. We'll be chatting to a variety of people affected by alcohol addiction. Our dads were both called Steve and they're both dead now, which means we can finally have the conversations we've wanted to. You had to go there already, didn't you? (laughs) We've had a lot of experiences between us and we are both really passionate about helping other people. So sit back, relax and join us with Sarah and Amy, Children of Alcoholics podcast. Back again for the second podcast. How was it for you? I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it last time. I really enjoyed your presence and talking to you about you being such a big drama queen. (laughs) 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 We've we've got Jess Frost in the room today, or we've got you virtually on screen at the moment. We can see your beautiful face. Um, Jess, so happy to have you on here with us. Thank you so much. Um, How are you? Oh my word. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's it's beautiful because obviously we met in the flesh recently, which yeah, I just knew these are my people. Oh, these oh, are we, my don't, people. we don't we don't want to brag or indeed talk about <laughs> Oh, here it, we go. But, uh, God, here we, we were go. recently in the Houses of Parliament. <laughs> were we? Oh my god, I forgot. <laughs> she reminds everyone. <laughs> <laughs> she's gonna have it literally when she dies she's gonna have i attended the houses of parliament once um also i, I stole the pass so i'll probably have that uh, put in she with stole me. the pass and blames it on being a child of an alcoholic because if you're a child of an alcoholic you are more likely to be involved in crime or be arrested well, yeah. statistics, statistically speaking it's not my so, fault exactly. jess it's not my fault <laughs> i couldn't help it just buried with it just with your badge on <laughs> Literally. <laughs> so right. um, Amy's going to introduce um, Jess to our second podcast. So which... once everyone has stopped taking the piss out of me. <laughs> Trauma <course>. Noted. <laughs> so Jess, you are a holistic empowerment and emotional resilience coach. Am I right? I am. Excellent. I am. So you can explain <laughs> to me in a minute what that actually covers. But you're here today, you um, are a child of an alcoholic. Yes. Um, and what do you want to talk to us about today? Um, I think it might be good initially, shall I tell you a bit about my story? How Definitely. I got here, yeah, yeah. how I got to doing this work. Um, it's funny because for a long, long time, like I would never have thought I'd be sat on a podcast talking about being the child of an alcoholic. It just wasn't language I associated with um taking things back to when I was really young um alcohol was a way of life it was a massive part of our household but it was very social um both my parents dealt with work stress money stress with alcohol um there was a lot of a lot of stress from day dot in our household. My dad struggled with his mental and emotional and physical health from the majority of my life. So in my younger years, he was in and out of psychiatric care. So diagnosed with things like schizophrenia, bipolar back then, um, was depressed a lot. I remember him like slipping a disc in his back and being off work for a long time. Like 
I just became a caretaker, I think, from a very young age. And because my mum, who through her experience and codependency was also the caretaker, would kind of be the breadwinner, would work all the time, would be away with work. And um, alcohol was just their way of coping, really. Um, I think back then in the kind of 80s, 90s, there was a lot of like middle class dinner party vibes. And it was like, oh, they're fun. My parents were fun. Yeah. They used to tell us stories about the 60s and 70s where they were quite open about their alcohol and drug taking. They were party animals. They would have everyone round and they'd be getting the vinyl out and dancing. So it was kind of like, I just thought they were cool. (laughs) And I thought that their social life was cool. But looking back now, I think as a highly sensitive child, which for anyone that hasn't heard of this, you know, one in five of us are highly sensitive as a personality trait. Very intuitive can kind of, (laughs) yeah, put your hands up. Um, (laughs) Yeah, can kind of sense the energy, even with nonverbal cues. I knew something was wrong in my family dynamic, but I was told everything's fine. Everything's fine. And so they're pouring a massive glass of wine and you know what I mean? And, I think I must have known from a very young age to be quiet, to, I remember being told all the time, don't upset your dad. Mm. Just don't upset your dad. Your dad's not very well. Your dad's not doing good today. Don't upset your dad. So I think I kind of learned to hide my authentic self, hide my sensitivity, not express my emotion as I wanted to probably from a young age. And Yeah, like I would never look back and go, my dad was an alcoholic from a young age. And I think where, you know, when in the in the kind of support groups I'm now in, where it's supporting children of alcoholics, I was like, well, that wasn't me because they were dad was okay then, you know. But, you know, as we do, when we look back, I can see the patterns, I can see it kind of getting worse. And then my dad worked in advertising. So, again, fueling this work hard, play hard. They would be down the pub at lunch. Like I remember hearing like all the time, oh, well, you know, the alcohol makes us more creative. (laughs) Like the alcohol enables us to flow a bit more. And my mum was in fashion again, like these kind of environments where it was, um, it was okay. It was encouraged if anything. And yeah, my dad would have periods of being vacant from the home. He would go off for long weekends Um, he actually joined a cult. I've only recently started talking about this, but he, he joined a cult and was kind of absent with this cult quite a lot. Again, leaving my mum to navigate home life and, um, keeping up appearances and having her own kind of very, very high pressure job. But I knew my dad was sensitive. Like he was very creative. He was he drew, he drew a lot of people to him, I think. He was very charismatic, very funny. My mum, you know, fell for him because he had a book under his arm the whole time. Like, he was he was a soul seeker. He was very into spirituality. Sadly, I think he thought this cult was something it wasn't. You know, and the stuff that I'm interested in now, he was probably interested in back then, but... He was desperately seeking something that he couldn't find within himself, I now know. And um, 
trying to compress this long story, but um, he got very poorly at one point, got made redundant from his job, um, left us to join this cult we thought would be forever. I remember literally stood, I'd drawn him a picture because I think I didn't, I didn't have the language at 12 to be able to tell him don't leave us and don't go. But I remember drawing a picture, probably thinking in my head, I think this is going to touch something in him. And he burst out into tears and he kind of stalled a bit with leaving. Um, but I just remember seeing him drive off and like my mum grabbing our hands and being like, okay, then girls, should we go swimming? And like, we just went swim- swimming and just cracked on. And we were living at the time in this really lovely, but very affluent village. And we couldn't afford it. My dad was out of work. He was sending all this money to this cult and drinking all the time. Um, and I was around other peers that I just benchmarked myself not good enough. It was like, I couldn't afford to do the things they were doing, go on the trips they were going on. If we did, it was because my mum literally at one point sold the whole furniture. She had no beds. They had like mattresses on the floor to be able to allow us to do the things that we wanted to do with our friends. And I remember saying for many years, like my childhood was amazing. And it was on the face of it. We were privileged compared to a lot of people. Um, But now. I would have been sensing this even when it wasn't, I wasn't being told what was going on. I would have been able to pick up on the energy and the sadness and, and everything. And my dad ended up getting sectioned before he made it across to the U S to this cult. Um, and we ended up taking him back into the family home. So I think that was a point where my codependency really started, which I'll probably go into a bit more detail because it's part of the work I do with people. But this whole, you must put yourself last, like this person's unwell, you need to now do everything for them. And, you know, even though my mum had gone through the absolute meal, it was like still taking him back, still taking him back into the home, And then it was just really kind of just watching a slow decline. He was either very heavily medicated for his mental and emotional struggle and just not there or drinking and not there. (laughs) But presumably Um, did the medication he was on and then the mix of medication and alcohol presumably counteracted each other and were quite chaotic is my assumption. Absolutely. Absolutely. It would take very little for him to just be completely gone. And I remember actually um, many memories of coming down from bed and my parents would have people over and there'd be dinner parties happening. And I just always remember my dad just slumped. Like my dad would just be like face in the, in the, in the dinner and, and it would become a joke. I remember people laughing at that. You describing the kind of dinner parties and it being fun and that's so my experience as well, Um, that social side of it and that keeping up appearances and keeping up with the Joneses even when it was financially and probably causing just a lot of stress. Yeah. And I think the problem is when you're given things that perhaps you're you perceive that your parents can't afford or are struggling to pay for, there's a guilt attached with that. One, that you've put them in that position and two, that you really have to put a brave face on and enjoy it. 
So I remember saying I didn't want to go on a school trip. So my I, I went to a fee paying school, which was a bit of a stretch. Mm. And there was a school trip, and I remember, and I did really desperately want to go on it, but I said I didn't want to go. And then I changed my mind, and of course I went, and I didn't really love it because <laughs> it was yeah. kind of exercise and abseiling and things that really scared me. Yeah. And then I just remember feeling so guilty that I had put everyone in this position where I was now on this trip, but actually I was petrified. Yeah, absolutely. I resonate with that so, so much. And it was like that that duality of being a child and kind of just being like, but mum, like, dad, I want that. And then getting older, absolutely. And then what's happening is that subconscious processing, isn't it, of what we're making it mean. I'm, yeah. I'm just not really worthy of this. I'm not good enough for this. And it's my fault that my parents are poorly and, you know, I'm making this situation worse. And When you yeah, permanently I, pitch yourself against other people, don't you? 100%. As in you do that with material items, you know, growing up material <clears throat> items, experiences, how you act. You're constantly looking at other people. Yeah. And that also applies to the, you know, the whole COA thing. It's mm-hmm. only when you start seeing how other people's families are or what their parents drink or how their parents behave that you start to realise that something's a bit off. Because oh for God, you, yeah. you didn't know any differently. No, no. And I remember at that time of my life, like where dad would be in and out of like psychiatric care and, you know, that that kind of fear of walking into the hospitals and seeing him just not there and you know this was back in back when there was like electric convulsive therapy you know where would just be completely just gone and I remember you know being the friendships in the village like having to like swap homes for a while where I would live with my friend's family for a while and then we'd take them in because they got their own stuff going on in their family home and this whole feeling of like, no one's talking about this. Like, I don't remember anyone sitting us down and asking how we felt or anyone in hospital being able to kind of take us to one side and be like, this isn't your fault, by the way. Like, your dad's unwell. And just this, like, yeah, being kind of pack a bag, go stay with another family for a little bit and just have fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm sat there like, what? That's two, there's two massive stigmas there isn't there there's the stigma yeah. around alcohol abuse and alcohol misuse and then obviously during that time period huge stigmas particularly around men's mental health they just were yeah. not conversations it was a sign of weakness and yeah. you just didn't talk about it so you had really the double whammy yeah everything I just felt like I was keeping it all in you know, my mum now I know just her way of coping was to not talk about it. I mean, any kind of mental and emotional struggle she had, it was like, right, I'm going to work out. I'm going to do exercise. I'm going to control this situation. Um, so that wasn't modelled with her either to be able to kind of sit down and talk about things. And from that point on, it was just eggshell living. Like my dad would lose it at the drop of the hat or just at unexpected times. Like I remember on father's day trying to make him feel better. And I got him a card and I remember him opening the card and it's saying on the front, like dad, you're out of this world. And he ripped it up and stamped on it in front of me and just screamed at me. And like, it would be like that for a while where, you know, I was called some horrible names and 
I was the eldest child. So my sister was especially sensitive as well. And I'd make sure that I was looking after her. So even though I would get screamed at, I'd make sure like I'd run and check on Rosie and, and make sure she was okay. And gosh, it, it was like this for a long time. And we moved house a lot, like moved so many times. And I remember just becoming more and more insular as each move happened at that period of my life between kind of like 12 and 20. And there was a year in my life where everything just went even worse, where uh, it was the year I think that I was, I went to uni. So it would have been like 2002. And for me personally, like I'd got this boyfriend who I'd been with for, the, for a few years and it was my first proper boyfriend. And I discovered he'd been cheating on me and he'd got this new person moved into his flat and, that was just awful because I felt like it was the first time I'd been really vulnerable and like let someone in during that really like really challenging time in my life. But then my dad's parents and uh, my dad was an only child. My dad's parents ended up taking their lives together in a suicide pact. Oh God. Um, and. Oh God, like just that whole time of just sensing something was really wrong I remember dad going to the house and being like then it's weird they're not answering the phone and stuff like that and him going around to to find them and then to hear his emotion come out probably for the first time like through the door with my sister hearing listening into the police talk to them and just knowing then this is going to go awfully wrong now like this has already been really bad and my parents relationship were already going down the pan my mum was getting really ill and I remember saying to her I was I was about 17 at the time 18 and I remember grabbing her arms in the kitchen and being like you're going to have to leave this relationship because you're both going to end up in hospital like and now I look back and I'm like god you shouldn't have to have done that like that responsibility I had to take on um to be the parent in that whole dynamic um but that I think that was my way of coping it was like I don't have to feel anything if I'm like looking after everyone else well you're sort of giving Um, her permission aren't you because yeah yeah. you can see as a parent they're trying to protect you but you're giving permission yeah for her to go kind of putting yourself in the front line then you take that control as well don't you I found I did that just wanted I wanted some kind of control over the situation and I wanted to save them um like so much of what you say resonates um which I always find really special when you talk to other COAs it always feels as though you can connect and talk on a different level and you just you understand it um yeah I think it sounds to me like you've like we've all had to suppress so many emotions and we've been made to feel as though where we're not allowed to talk about it and it was almost that secret and it was almost like you know it's not that bad other people have it worse we always used to get that yeah um if you think you've got it bad like all all that kind of stuff it's almost like it was that invalidation all the time and you always used to almost like feel like oh well that person's worse maybe maybe I'm being dramatic or I would actually be called a drama queen that's why Amy and I we joke about it all the time because we were called drama queens like when you confront it and you say something and you're almost I don't know if it's 
intentional gaslighting, but it's almost yeah. like you're made to feel as though there isn't an issue. You're making a big deal out of nothing. This isn't that bad. Mm. So you take that control and then you second guess yourself. You doubt whether, am I going mad? Is it as bad as I'm making out it is? Is, yeah. is this an issue? Um, and then on top of all of that, you've got the stigmas. So everything you said about the stigmas, I totally relate. I was the poor kid. Yeah. I mean, I grew up as, an, like, we were quite a wealthy family growing up. And then something like, horrendous happened to my dad, which propelled his drinking. We lost yeah. everything. And then I'm the kid on the council estate. Yeah. So I'd, and it was back in the early noughties where Shameless, the TV <clears> sitcom, <throat> was out. I didn't want to go to school and have to tell them, yeah, I'm the, I live in a council estate. My dad's an alcoholic and um, I don't have any money to do anything. Yeah. yeah. You guys do. Ticking all the boxes. Yeah. At that so point. I yeah. did. I was, com- I literally put on this like bravado and almost this fake persona that I'm not that. I, I'm because of the stigma. Yeah. So you throw absolutely. in the stigmas and the suppression of your feelings and it does, it equates to this highly sensitive intuitive young person who's yeah. Yeah. second guessing themselves all the time unsure of themselves loses their identity doesn't have a clue who they are um yeah. and yeah it's a recipe for a lot of mental illness in the future yeah. and Jess I think the thing that you've just yeah. said that was really struck me is obviously a horrific thing with your grandparents mm. and your dad but in that moment, when bad things happen, I think COAs spend so much time just trying to keep everything on a level. Yeah. Everything as calm and as normal, in inverted commas, I really hate that word, but as normal as it can yeah. be. Mm. And obviously you've got all these external factors. And as soon as something bad happens to tip that balance, as a COA, you do catastrophize because you can see where it's going because you know that everything is so delicately balanced yeah. and keeping the status quo. Yeah. Obviously, your situation was extreme, mm. but it can be the loss of a job or yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, getting done for drink driving and uh, or any of those things that just yeah. tip that delicate balance. And that's why so many COAs just become so sensitive to their surroundings and yeah. walk on eggshells all the time and we've talked before haven't we about assessing the tone of a parent's voice when they answer mm-hmm. the phone how much have they had to drink what am I going home to what all of those <laughs> things that I think a lot of us really can relate to you worry yeah. about their triggers don't you so I imagine for you oh when God. that when that I mean I've noticed that I've just literally done it you've spoken about something incredibly traumatic and my brain is trained almost to go okay let's divert conversation to something else that's not as like it because you're you're you train yourself you don't want to trigger yeah. your parent because you know oh, if something bad really happens they're going to drink more and if they drink more that's going to get even worse like yeah. it's just I mean my dad's um my dad was sober for 16 months before he died and then his dad died and that Mm. triggered him to relapse and then he died so I can imagine when that happened for you with your grandparents that fear of that oh my god things are going to get so much worse now how are we going to deal with this Um, yeah well I mean coupled with your own grief and shock and all of those things as well which of course we haven't even we've just kind of gone well you know you carried on but of course yeah. There's a double impact there, isn't there? Mm. 
Oh, 100%. It was like going back to what you said about, I guess, what I, what my brain does. Um, and this I know now know through like IFS therapy and things like that is that these are coping mechanisms. These are parts of myself that protect me, but there's a very cognitive part. There's a part that's very logical. That's like, that went to study uni and did psychology. I went to study uni, went to uni to study psychology because I wanted to understand my dad. The person that read all the self-help books, listened to all the podcasts, have done all the training in the human mind and body is because my brain likes to go, oh, but you know, they've got trauma and this has happened to them. And it was like that part stepped in when everything happened with my grandparents because I was fully aware of some of the things they said to my dad and some of the traumatic things that my dad faced because of his upbringing. And, and it was almost like I was so angry for a while about what they did because it felt like another punch to him. And I was just like, I know that this shame is going to get him. Like this is going to just, so kind of justified everything that my dad did, I guess, to a certain extent. Same with my mum. My poor mum lost her mum to suicide. Like, it's just like, and it's again like, well, she's been through so much. And then, you know, with everything with my dad and it's like, I could explain everything away to not feel the emotion because no one modeled that in my family. No one modeled healthy processing of trauma and, and actually taking responsibility for that and, and going and getting help and and all that stuff. So it was literally like, right, okay, my role's here again. I'm going to step up and I'm going to sort everything out. And yeah, my parents ended up like, separating for good and um that's when my dad's drinking really took a new level because before it was very social and it could be passed as kind of like you know it's part of the job it's part of like the, the village culture um but then it got to you know he was completely out of work in and out of psychiatric care his house was deteriorating I remember having to take the family dog off him which was his crutch for a long time you know we got the dog because of his mental health and he was a great support to him but I'd find him right we lived down the street from dad deliberately which was also really hard but you know I'd see the dog just roaming around the streets and I'd have to take him back to the house and I don't know when the last time he'd been fed and there'd be cider bottles everywhere he'd got like random men from the town living there that were homeless who would be abusive to me and my dad would laugh and just I was I was told by my dad it's your fault you've ruined my life you've te- you've separated my you took your mum away from me you've taken my dog from me now and I knew it was coming from a place of pain but there was a part of me that felt like I had to stay like I had it was my job to fix it um and I remember being so angry that my mum could walk away yeah. like that it was like we've we're, we're divorcing now, and then me and my sister would be the one picking up the pieces. Oh God, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I think so all three of us have had that. All yeah, three of have. our dads yeah. were on their own. I, mm. I, I think as well what you've said about the whole um, having that compassion for the parents and understanding well they had trauma. I totally hear you when you say that. But what it does, and what I've discovered that it does, because I always used to do that, I always used to justify my dad's behaviour and think he's had a lot of trauma. Um, We never processed it as a family. He didn't understand Mm. how to process it. So I suppressed a lot of anger. I suppressed a lot of anger with my dad because I thought it's not his fault. 
this isn't his fault. And then if I did get angry with him or I didn't feel like I did enough, then I'd get angry with myself yeah. and I'd have a lot of guilt on myself. And it's only recently as an adult where I've kind of gone, well, actually, do you know what? He was a bit of an arsehole <laughs> when he was drunk and that's okay. It's fine yeah. to feel angry. Like you yeah. can be angry still. It doesn't mean you don't love them and it doesn't mean that you're a bad person for being angry at a situation. It, it's yes. a situation at the end of the day. It doesn't make them bad people. And and I had this in therapy and I've had so much therapy. Um, but this is what we kind of came to the conclusion with. It's okay to be angry. And when, when we started exploring all of this anger and I thought, and it all came out then, I'm angry with this person, I'm angry with that person and that really wound me up and this has really pissed me off. And oh my God, how freeing it was to kind of just say yeah I was angry and yeah. that's okay because it was a secondary emotion my anger was a reaction to a primary emotion which was an emotion full of sadness and oh heartache and heartbreak and why did this happen to us why why was our childhood like this why did this happen to my dad um yeah. so much of what you say just resonates um yeah. Amy and I spoke last time about even down to the states of their living situation. It, yeah. There's another stigma there. You don't want to get yeah. people involved because yeah. you're embarrassed to bring people back to help them. Um, yeah. What you've said that's really interesting and I find, um, and I think we'll all relate to this and there'll be a lot of listeners that will relate to this, is you said that your dad doesn't identify as an yeah. alcoholic. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Because that must be really difficult to process your own emotions. And I mean, Amy and I, we both identify as children of alcoholics. Mm. But when your parent doesn't identify as an alcoholic, it makes you feel like a drama queen, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, oh. my, my, yeah, my dad never attached that label to himself at yeah. all. But then after he died and we were um, kind of in his flat cleaning out, we found so many books about change your relationship with alcohol, or I think we even found kind of the um, the AA 12 Steps book. Um, the last thing he'd looked at on Amazon was books about adult children of alcoholics. Um, you know, obviously he completely knew. He absolutely knew he was yeah. in an addiction. He didn't identify with that label because he thought alcoholics were losers. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. he had a really negative judgment on that label and didn't attach it to himself but you know I know that he did it's so complicated and obviously you you know your dad is still um around yeah. and yeah you identify as a child of an alcoholic yeah you know you support Nakoa and yeah. you're here talking to us today and you're very yeah. open about it and clearly your whole job and what you've gone on to do has been really influenced by how you grew up. Massively. So if he doesn't identify as an alcoholic, can you still have the conversations about the things you're doing? You know, for example. Yeah. yeah. 100%. I'd say that one of the massive parts of my healing journey and, and a way to empower myself where I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust my intuition. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I thought. I was a massive people pleaser and wore loads of masks. One of the biggest parts of my journey has been validating my own experience, using the language that makes me feel validated in my experience. 
Sometimes it validates me to say I'm an adult child and an alcoholic. Sometimes it equally validates me to say I was deeply, deeply affected by the periods of my dad's drinking. I was deeply, deeply affected by the periods of my dad's mental and emotional ill health. You know, I think there's children out there that have got parents that struggle with mental and emotional health as well without the alcohol that can be really hard. Um, I think, you know, I struggle with being the child of parents who weren't emotionally there, that couldn't hold space. So it's kind of, yeah, it's been really freeing to just work out what language is going to help me and knowing that that's probably going to change and ebb and flow. And sometimes saying I'm a child of alcoholic doesn't make me feel safe because my dad's still alive. But I think the wording that Nakoa uses about being affected by parents drinking, I thought that was so powerful mm-hmm. because it's like, if that person doesn't say they're that, especially for a child who's going to look to the adults for validation, if you're affected by the drinking, that's all that matters. And I think, my goodness, it's been a journey. So me and my dad had no contact for a long time when I was kind of in my late 20s into my early 30s because I recognised that this has really impacted me. But it was when Leicester City won the league in 2016 because we're massive Leicester City fans and he used to take me as a kid. We started speaking again. And that's when he started big periods of sobriety. I mean, he'd say he's been sober for a long period of time. I've learned to go, you're sober at the moment. That's amazing. And I'm not going to attach too much to timeframes. But when my dad's sober, like, he is amazing. He's so interesting. Like, he now was part of his healing journey. And by the way, he didn't do a 12-step program or anything like that. He just spoke out his shame. Okay. That's really interesting. And That's really interesting. Like, literally went to different support groups that he's always been in for his mental, emotional health. And there's been great places in Leicester that's enabled him to kind of build those connections and supports. But he spoke out loud about some of his dark, deep, deepest, darkest stuff. And he stopped drinking. Like he's done the, I don't know how. (laughs) And like, he's had like physical MOTs and he's doing all right. And I'm like, how? (laughs) (laughs) You're you're a medical marvel. How are you? (laughs) Like, yeah, but like he is so charismatic and, you know, he's now as part of his healing journey and to stay sober is talking in the community. So he just talks about his, his, um, his sobriety and his journey uh, he talk, He goes and just talks to like mods because he used to be an old mod. He was dead cool, like in the 60s and 70s. So he meets up with old mods and tells his story and he could write a book. He's he's, a, he, he's just, he's amazing. But I guess one of the biggest things that his sobriety has given me and I've hated it is I've had to face myself and I've had to face the pain, the grief, all the emotions in that silence of his sobriety because my body and my mind was so built for crisis that I didn't have to face myself. I didn't have to look at myself and the sobriety when I was at, I was still by my phone waiting for the call. Um, And I love what you said on the, on your podcast about um, um, having that phone on loud like I, I people go oh, I turn my phone off completely at night and I'm like I can't who do that are, still. who literally who are those people <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm like I can't do that in case in case, in case he does happens. yeah in, absolutely yeah um 
or like I find out that he's drinking again or, you know, something happens in his relationship. He's got a new relationship now. He's moved out of, um, he used to live in halfway houses because he couldn't do independent living. But he's now, he's left that. And that brought a lot for me of panic. of Like, oh God, really? Are you okay? Codependency coming back. But it gifted me that space where I could say no contact or at least let me decide when I speak to you is actually going to therapy because I think a big thing for COAs is this hyper-independence. I don't need help. I don't need support. Um, Pretending everything was okay, just keeping myself really busy. So I was a massive overworker, burnt out in the corporate world all the time, perfectionism, like you name it. Um, And actually when he got sober, that's when I really like deep dived into my own development also, oh sorry I was gonna say no, also no. as well you saying that we weren't allowed to talk out we weren't allowed to speak about our emotions no. so keeping no. that brave face and I'm okay everything's fine we just suppressed everything and yeah. just got on with it because we thought well that's how you deal with your emotions you either 100%. drink to deal with them or yeah. you just don't talk about it 100% so I literally I've, did all of it yeah. drinking I've, Sorry, go on. I've got to go and do something in the next few months, which I really don't want to do, Um, which is I can't I have to go and give evidence at something which is around my dad. um, And I don't want to do it because I'm going to have to hear a lot of information and see images and listen to stuff that I'm really, really not okay with knowing. Yeah. And it's the first time this week. So I found out this week I was going to have to do it. And my default reaction was, well, I'm just going to put on my big girl knickers and I have to do it. And that is true. I do have to do it. But I actually did say to my husband the other day, I really, really don't want to do this. And I'm really scared about doing it. And it's not fair that I'm having to do it. And it kind of all came out. And that's never really happened before because my default position up until now has been just do it just yeah rip the band-aid off yeah and actually I haven't really enjoyed making myself vulnerable and admitting it this week but it has been really important because it turns out there are people I can speak to before I have to go and do this thing and that will hopefully make it a bit easier Mm. this is a massive COA thing though yeah yeah this is a huge COA thing that we um we don't put our emotions first because we've always been placing other people ahead of our own well-being and suppressing emotions is what we're really good at yeah yeah but even this thing I have to do my d and again I was talking to a friend about it and saying I don't want to do it but I have to do it and she said, well, how do you feel? And I have to go to Manchester for it. I was like, well, at least the shops are good. So my, and you like my instant reaction is, well, it's a mini break. It's a night away from the kids. Uh, I'm going to go and spend a load of money in the traffic centre. Because actually yeah. that's much, much easier for me to kind of just put on that bravado. Yeah. Than go, no, actually, I'm really, really scared and I really don't want to do it. Yeah. And I can't unsee what I'm going to have to see and all of those things. Because I know I have to do it. The same as if you're, a, you know, when you're a COA or when you've got something happening, you have to get through it, don't you? 
Yeah. Oh, I'm celebrating you for sharing that. Yeah, I am as Massively. well. Massively. You don't usually share no. anything. Oh, I'm going to spend yeah. so much money gonna... at the shops. <laughs> <laughs> this is how she does. This is how she deals yeah. with it. She'll, like my my, do you know I'm really. I <laughs> shouldn't say this, but I'm close enough to her to say this. My instant reaction is to make a joke because <laughs> that's what she does to me. <laughs> I'm like, oh, she's sharing something. Oh, no, oh, this is awkward. Do you want a hug? Oh. Do you need a hug, hun? <laughs> So Sarah and I were having lunch the other week. This is not my proudest moment, but I sort of am quite proud of it. We were having lunch the other week and Sarah's dad, Steve, he died a week before his 60th birthday. And you're looking really empathetic about that. And oh, that must be really difficult for you. And I just said, did you take his presents back? That's what I have to put up with. (laughs) Do Do you see what I'm dealing with? <laughs> she masquerades. You know, she puts this bravado like I'm a comedian. <laughs> Do you know what she's called our club? What? The Dead Dad Club. The DDC. <laughs> Apply within. Yeah. Oh, gonna have some badges and get the t-shirts printed. Yeah. Little laminated yeah. card. You know, like. You can get in school now. You can get a card if it's all a bit halfway. I'm just going to get some little laminated. I know cards. a lot of yeah. psychologists that would be like, I'd love to deep dive into Amy's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> can we get stuff? Can we unpack? This? I oh, think if I find the right one, they could probably retire after. <laughs> oh dear! But it's so true, though, isn't it? These like protector parts, whether it's a humour part, like I've got like quite a tough girl now. I've mm. recognised. And like she started in the teens and she's just got stronger and stronger and stronger into my kind of now late thirties, but um, being able to honor her and being able to see her and be like, it's all right, girl, it's fine. I've got this, sit back, sit down. Like, but just being able to like, these parts have been there to protect us the whole time. Yes. Um, Do you know what I mean? And be grateful for them. They've got us through, they've got us through dark times. 100%, 100%. And now I know, okay, they're not serving me to be in the driving seat because what they're doing is protecting me from feeling anything. Mm. So, you know, therapy's really helped me with that to kind of work with my parts and and kind of enable myself to feel. But my goodness, the thought of like unleashing the grief that we weren't allowed to feel and the, the sadness and all of that that's masked under tough girl, that anger is it's been terrifying of like overwhelming oh my god you have to feel that I don't want to do that I'm not if I lift that lid up will I be able to close it down like but do you I, like yourself better now after doing that 100% like don't get me wrong I'm still with you on the vulnerability thing I think vulnerability is going to take about. me a long time don't, don't know what you're talking about <laughs> What? She's got the face on. I'm, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm completely open. I used to say that though. Like, oh, I tell everyone in Morrison's about my stuff. But, you know, really honestly, like you say, being able to turn to someone and be like, I'm really scared or I'm really struggling because what my poor partner gets most of the time is slamming doors, chucking things around, just getting activated, losing my head. But underneath that is a small girl that just wants to absolutely sob. And that's where I'm really grateful for the spaces I've found that enable me to 
to to ask for that help and and to not feel like I don't deserve it. And I think especially as someone that I facilitate a lot of spaces, I'm a very good leader in spaces. But am I able to give that to myself? It's usually always the way. Yeah, literally. And it's like I'm now having to sit in that discomfort of being on the flip side of that, mm. of being like. So if somebody comes to you as a COA or you yeah. know, kind of have had an experience around that, what where do you start with that? If somebody really wants to work on that side of themselves a massive part of what I do is holding space no judgment no answers no prescribing one of my biggest triggers is not feeling seen and heard we talked about um yesterday I got really activated no the other day not yesterday day before I was supposed to be going live on Instagram with my friend is a fellow coach And I was just getting a whirring on the screen. I couldn't connect. I could see her panicking. And I was so excited to talk about this thing that I was launching in her community. And I got so triggered. I couldn't get on. And then as soon as I realized I couldn't do it, that was it. Anger started. I was kicking the door. I was on the floor crying, then angry, then crying, then angry. Like my poor partner was downstairs. (laughs) Imagine if it had actually connected while you were doing that as well. I did. I did actually have a thought. I was like, here's the real me. Um, a follower, but, <laughs> um, but like I unpacked it with my with my therapist. It was really timely, actually. Um, but you know, I unpacked it with her, and it was it wasn't even. I thought, is it is it about rejection and abandonment? And no, it wasn't. That reaction is because I wanted to speak. I wanted to finally feel seen and heard and have connection, and it wasn't allowing me to do it. And that is what I had my whole life. Yeah. When, when you have someone, and th- this doesn't have to be alcohol, they could be like, if you think about it now, addiction to the phones, parents that are constantly scrolling, parents that are numbing out with alcohol, parents that are numbing out with drugs, like parents that just haven't got that emotional capacity to see and hear you and hold space for you exactly how you are in that moment, maybe because of their own stuff, not being able to handle that. That is what I want to give people most mostly is this ability to have a space where they are seen and they're heard and they can show up in whatever emotion they need to show up in that day whether they are raging whether they are sad whether they're having a good time like showing up and what I help them do is not sit in the past so unlike therapy and counseling there's a lot of kind of unpacking and understanding of what might have gone on what I'm trained in is what you made it mean about yourself so I'm trained in language so I can pick up on some limitations they might have about themselves. A lot of, a lot of COAs, um, a lot of adult children in any respect will have made it mean something about themselves at a very, very young age about not being enough and not being worthy and it being their fault and that they have to take responsibility for everyone else and outside of themselves. They're probably rescuers, you know, go into jobs that are going to help and serve other people. So one of the commitments I made to myself as a coach is that I can't go into this job codependent. So I got the help of therapists and and holistic coaches to help me break free from those beliefs. Because if there was any way of me attaching that self-worth to the outcome of the person sat in front of me, that's really dangerous. So knowing that the work that that person has to do is theirs, I can be there and I can hold space and I can support and reflect back and, and keep account. But I can't take responsibility for how that pans out 
but if I can create a safe space for people to peel back those unconscious layers, that armor that they've built around them and allow them to practice vulnerability with me. And I do it in my group spaces as well, where we check in with one another and be vulnerable and honest. Mm -hmm. And you know what, if that feels uncomfortable listening to that, okay, how do we work through that? Yeah. That discomfort of someone else's pain. Let's sit with that. How do we start feeling that emotion and really starting to help them kind of build that emotional literacy, which has been all the stuff that I've had to do myself. And I found so much power in it, like so much freedom. And it's an ongoing process. It's never done this work. But if I can help anyone know that they are enough and they always have been, and it's not none of their fault and that they are, deserving of everything they want for their life then that that's my soul's purpose really oh god Jess I'm I'm well enough with that that's really powerful really powerful you don't cry I'm just all so feeling all very awkward she, about she's the feeling... thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, get the jokes going come yeah, on. <laughs> like, that was really uh do you know where, where can people find find you on social media and do you have a website people can um search yeah. for you yeah so i am at um at i am jess frost on instagram um on facebook it's jess frost empowerment and my website is www.jessfrost.co.uk oh well honestly you have been incredible your journey is just inspirational your story is so powerful um and i'm just really just one last question i'm really interested yeah. what's your relationship with your dad like now good question um you know what? He's been amazing with my boundaries. Like I've had to say to him whilst I'm going through this stage of my therapy, because I thought I'd done all the work. I was like, yeah, it's fine. No, started my own business and everything was like, Pff. so going through some really deep um, therapy work. And I've been able to speak to him and ring him and say, dad, I, I can't, I can't speak to you that much at the moment. Like, because he would ring me constantly and, and leave me constant voicemails and, I think he's carried so much guilt and shame. He's apologized a million times, bless him. And but I think what I've had to do is is honor what it's what it's been like for me now. Okay. Just because he said he's sober and just because he's sober doesn't erase everything. It doesn't suddenly mean that everything's fine and we can be bezies. And I've had to tell him that. So I'm really happy you're sober, Dad. But I'm having to now pay for therapy and put a lot of time and effort to to unpack and to heal the wounds that were caused in my life. And he's been brilliant. He doesn't, he doesn't ring me. Um, I get in touch with him. Um, and it's really hard because, you know, when he first started, he's now got eyes on my socials, which he didn't before. And he's seeing Nakoa stuff. And he's, you know, I think it's made him feel a bit of guilt. But I've just said to him, you know what, dad guilt's a great emotion. <laughs> Guilt is actually a really important emotion because it makes you reflect. And, you know, all I can do for my dad is to say, look, dad, I love you, but I've got to do this for myself. And, and this is going to be the best thing for both of us if I can allow, have this time to work on myself. So allowing that duality. Um, but he's been amazing. He is, he's so supportive of the work I do. Um, there's still a massive part of me that's terrified that me talking about this will tip things but 
I can't take responsibility. I can't, I know now I can't take responsibility for that. And the more I speak, the more it's going to help people who don't feel seen and heard. And I think he knows that deep down. So the answer is it's a work in progress, but we are in contact. He's still sober. And yeah, I'm, I'm happy to to keep putting the effort in as long as I'm putting myself first. That's amazing. That is amazing. And because I think, oh, go on. I think if my dad had ever gone through a period of sobriety, we would never have talked about it in that mm. I would have just, we wouldn't have talked about the bigger picture or or the the effects it had had. It would have just been, okay, well, that's good. Well done. Yeah. Very kind of stiff upper lip, tap on the back. Yeah. Let's carry on. Yeah. And I would never have entus- entirely trusted a sobriety journey for my dad. I would yeah. not have ever been comfortable with that, I think. I would have always been waiting for it to go wrong. Um, but I don't think I would, I I think his personality and the way I am, we just wouldn't have been able, you know, it would have been really difficult for me to do that. So I'm completely in awe of everything that you have done and the way that you have kind of used it to empower yourself and others. It really is. Yeah, we've really got impressive. we've got to break that cycle, haven't we? And yeah. talking about it like this, and it's great. It really is great that your dad supports it. Um, yeah, and that's his way of being able to give back to you, and, exactly, and break that cycle. So, other COAs, like you say, feel heard. They feel seen, yeah. and we can stop this and empower yeah. more people to get help. And you know, yeah. the reality is, as a child of an alcoholic, it's never your fault. It's never your fault if your parent drinks. You can't control it. You can't cure it. And we all know that, but you are literally embodying that. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Honestly, Jess, you've been amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I kind of feel like that's a wrap. You've been listening to Sarah and Amy, the Children of Alcoholics podcast. If any of the things we've been talking about resonates with you and you want further help, please contact NACOA at www.nacoa.org.uk. There you will find a wealth of information, support and advice. And remember, you are not alone.